Well, I bring you greetings from High Point Baptist Church in Austin, Texas, and our pastors, uh, from my wife and from our girls. Uh, it is wonderful to be here. Uh, Aaron and I met in seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and actually, uh, I don't know that he remembers this, but he's actually the one that told me about this church in Texas that I need to look into, and providentially, the Lord led us there, and we've been there for 15 and a half years. Uh, and it is wonderful uh, to be in Austin. But I have to confess, it is wonderful to be in the Atlanta area today because our church is shut down because of ice. And so um, our, our two youngest girls are at home, and we try to walk them through what dripping the faucets was like, and ended up having to call my son-in-law. So <clears throat> pray for all the cold Austinites this morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Daniel chapter 1. And as you turn to Daniel chapter 1, I invite you to come and pray with me now. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and we humble ourselves. Father, we do confess that sometimes we are so rooted in this world that we don't long for the eternal kingdom. Father, would you expose our misordered longings? Would you reorient our thinking? Would you renew our minds? Would you show us your glory in the face of your son Jesus Christ from the pages of scripture by the power of your spirit? In the name of Jesus we ask, amen. Well, if 2020 has taught us anything and even the first days of 2021, I think it has exposed the fact, and perhaps I can only speak for myself, it has exposed the fact, the reality, that we were too rooted in this world, that we were too earthly-minded to actually be of any earthly good. And when we're too earthly-minded, we pursue personal comfort rather than the sacrifice of personal evangelism. When we're too earthly-minded, we demand our personal rights rather than sacrifice for the good of others. When we're too earthly-minded, we long for an ideal life on earth, but we don't long for the perfect life in the eternal kingdom. And so I pray that whatever God is doing in this global pandemic throughout all the turmoil over the last year, I pray that he would continue to unroot us from this world and to give us a right perspective, an eternal perspective. A big part of my job as a pastor is to continually unroot our people from this world because it is so easy to be transformed and conformed to this world. We cannot be of any earthly good until we are sufficiently heavenly-minded. In fact, we cannot even truly enjoy the things of earth until we're sufficiently heavenly-minded. This is our reality as Christians. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we are strangers on this earth. We have to remind ourselves of this reality because I think at times we get too comfortable on this earth, and if we were to confess what we felt in our hearts, we would say, Jesus, don't come back yet. But that 
That's a misordering of our affections and our longings. When we repented and trusted in Christ, we abandoned our allegiances to the ways of this world and to its gods. We bowed the knee to King Jesus and we swore allegiance to him as our Lord. Our dilemma is this. How do we endure in this foreign world without being conformed to it? And we need to reorient our thinking in that way. This is the dilemma that Daniel and his friends face as they find themselves as exiles in Babylon. I want to remind us this morning that we're more like Daniel and his friends in Babylon than the Israelites in Jerusalem. And sometimes we act too much like this is the eternal kingdom, that, that this is our home, and we don't long for our eternal home. But we would be wrong to think that Daniel chapter 1, and Daniel as a whole, is about Daniel. Actually, Daniel is about God. And Daniel chapter 1 is not just a fanciful story about some young teenagers, and I take them to be in their late teens at this point, that have been stripped away from their homeland, dragged over 500 miles to a strange place. And the lessons for us really are primarily about who their God is. As they begin to question in their minds all the promises of God, the, the promise of 2 Samuel 7, that there would always be a king from David's line on the throne in Jerusalem. And the people of God are thrown because they're no longer in Jerusalem. Now they're in Babylon. They're in a foreign land. But God, you promise us all these things. You promise an eternal kingdom. You promise blessing. And now it's all gone. When we suffer and when we face crisis, we have a tendency to question either God's sovereignty or God's goodness or both. And this is where Israel finds itself now. These teenagers in a strange land wondering, God, are you really in control? And are you really good? And this is why the prophecy of Daniel is so important for us in these times the question that the prophecy of Daniel answers is, what do the exiles need to know in order to not merely survive exile, but to endure faithfully in exile? They need to know that no matter what they're facing, their God is in control, that their God is sovereign. I want to give you a clue as to how to read chapter 1. There's an important word that is given three times. The word gave is found three times throughout Daniel chapter 1. In verse 2, it tells us that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. In verse 9, it tells us that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And in verse 17, it tells us that God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Here's the point of Daniel chapter 1. The God that gave them into exile is the God that gives them grace to endure exile. That's it. That's the sermon. But I'll keep going. The God who gave them into exile is the God who gives them the grace to sustain them during exile. What I want to do is I want to walk through Daniel chapter 1 fairly quickly. And then I want to leave you with four ways 
that understanding the sovereignty of God, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, four ways that understanding that God is sovereign empowers us to endure our exile. Listen to Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave, there's the first time we see the word, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar. There we should hear echoes of the Tower of Babel, right? The people of God are back in the land where they try to build a tower to reach up to God, the place of arrogance where God dispersed them. Now they've ended back up in the same place. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's place and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Here we see that it is the sovereign God who gives his rebellious people over into exile. In these few verses, we see that this was God's doing. In verse 1, from verse 1, we know it is the year 605 B.C. This was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, And this was his first invasion. And these are the first exiles to come out of Jerusalem. In verse 2, here we see that it was the Lord, the personal God of Israel, Yahweh, who gave them over into judgment. This is not some accidental exile. In fact, it is a very purposeful exile. First of all, it is a general judgment. General judgment that when we read the Old Testament, we realize that God promised to bless his people in the land with supernatural blessing if they kept the covenant. But if they did not keep the covenant, he would bring them tremendous curses. And one of those curses was exile. We see this in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. But this is also a specific judgment that we read of in 2 Kings 20, verses 16 through 19. It's a specific judgment against King Hezekiah. Over 100 years before this, after King Hezekiah showed the Babylonian representatives all that he had, he took them in his treasury, the Lord announced this judgment. And the judgment on Hezekiah was because rather than trusting on God to be their defender and protector against the nations, Hezekiah trusted in a political alliance. Hence, why he showed the treasury to the Babylonians. And this is God's judgment. We read it in Isaiah 39, 1 through 7. I'll just read a portion of it. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that which your fathers have stored up till this day 
shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. It's a very specific judgment. And just as Isaiah had prophesied in verses 3 through 4, we see that Nebuchadnezzar took the best of Jerusalem's youth. Verse 3, it tells us they were of royal blood. They came from Hezekiah's own line. They were beautiful, says verse 4. They were skilled. He plucked the best of them for his own service. And in verses 4 and 5, we learn that these youths were to be indoctrinated. This is really important. They were to be reprogrammed in the ways of Babylon for three years. Verse 4 shows us that they were to learn the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, of the Babylonians. What does that mean specifically? Well, they had their own literature, didn't they? And they had their own language. And Israel's life was tied together religiously. There wasn't a separation of church and state. They were a theocracy. And under God, their language was the Torah. Their, their, their scripture, their literature was the word of God. Their government was God's government. God was king over them. They had their own customs. They had their own traditions. They had their own language. And now they're being brought to a different land. And they're going to be reprogrammed altogether for three years. And what better way to reprogram than reprogram the youth of the culture? But not only were they to be reprogrammed in the literature and the language, they were to be reprogrammed even in their diet. Which is fascinating, isn't it? Because even Israel's diet was distinct. Their very diet was to distinguish them from the surrounding nations so that they just couldn't sit down at the table with the foreign nations. And in verse 5, it also says that after three years, they were to be presented to the king for, uh, for evaluation. And then in verse, verses 6 and 7, we see that among these youth from Jerusalem are Daniel and his friends. Verse 6 tells us they were of the tribe of Judah. And they had good Jewish names, reflecting their God. But notice how even here, their names are changed to reflect the gods of the Babylonians. I mean, this is a complete reprogramming project. These Jewish youths were taken captive from their land and now are exiles in a strange and hostile land being conformed to Babylon in order to serve the, Babylon, the Babylonian king and the Babylonian gods. And the question that these verses raise for us already is, how can these teenagers keep covenant? How can they remain holy? The laws and stipulations of the covenant that was made at Sinai helped them to maintain distinction from the world. That was the purpose of the law, to separate them from the world and to consecrate them to God. And so keeping covenant was important. And so the question now is, how will they keep covenant in a strange and foreign land? If they disobey the holiness code, the holiness laws, they would become unclean. So what did these young men in all Israel need to know in order to endure faithfully during exile? The main thing they needed to know was this. In spite of the circumstances, in spite of what it appears to you right now, God is on his throne. 
He's in control, and he's directing everything. That's what the book of Daniel is about. He's the Lord of history. The Lord that gave them over into exile in judgment is the Lord who is sovereign over kings and kingdoms. If you turn over just to chapter 2, beginning in verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. This is the theme of Daniel. This is the message of Daniel. Our God reigns. We cannot live by the sight of our circumstances. We must live by faith in the sovereign God. Even when things appear hopeless, this is the Lord who is sovereign over history and over personal circumstance. And because the Lord is sovereign, he will keep his promises and he will sustain his people. This is why Daniel was written, to assure Israel that the same God who gave them over into exile is the same God who will give them the grace to endure exile. How? Well, this is what verses 8 through 21 help us to see. Here we see that the sovereign Lord gives his people grace, the grace needed to endure exile. Let's pick up in verse 8. Here Daniel resolved to remain faithful and keep covenant. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Verse 9 and God gave, second time we hear the word, and God gave Daniel favor, grace. He gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youth who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now the point of this is not to have your own Daniel fast. The point of this is keeping covenant. And Daniel's resolve to keep covenant no matter what. And he has to negotiate terms. Notice how he's in a foreign land under foreign government and yet he's respectful of those authorities and he submits himself to those foreign agents that are his captors. In verse 9, we see that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel resolved to keep covenant and God gave him favor that he would be able to keep covenant. But the chief of the eunuchs is more afraid of the king than he is of Daniel in verse 10. But notice how in verses 11 through 14, clearly God also gave Daniel favor with the steward that was assigned over him. And in verses 15 through 16, we see that God blessed Daniel and his friends' obedience in apparent supernatural ways. 
So I'm not a dietitian. I don't presume to be a medical doctor. But it seems to me that part of what's going on is a supernatural sustenance on just water and vegetables that allow them to gain weight. Now, for me, I gain weight with cookies and cake, not with vegetables. But what we see is the God who gave them into exile is the God who gives them grace to endure exile. And then in verse 17, we see the third time that we hear the word gave. As for these youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So God didn't only give them grace to sustain them in exile. He actually gave them grace to bless their captors. A few years later, Jeremiah will write a letter to the next set of exiles because they're thinking the exile will be over soon. They're thinking, okay, this is not going to last long. Our God's going to swoop in and he's going to take us out of here really fast. And Jeremiah has to remind them, well, wait a minute, this thing's going to last 70 years. And this is what Jeremiah says to them in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Remember, this is God. God is saying, I have sent them into exile. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is exactly what Daniel and his friends will do, and this is why God gives them the grace to bless their captors. He gives them the ability in learning and skill in their literature and in their wisdom and in God's wisdom. He gave Daniel understanding in all visions and dreams, and we'll see how this helps them unfold. Daniel will bless King Nebuchadnezzar in the very next chapter, interpreting a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. We have to be careful how we interpret and apply Old Covenant situations to the New Covenant. But remember, we are exiles. And I think it's appropriate for us to understand that God could have saved us and just taken us to heaven. But he has left us here. And if we're more like Daniel and his friends in Babylon than Israel in Jerusalem, then we are here to serve in this world and to seek the welfare of our city, because in their welfare, we will find our welfare. In verses 18 through 20, we see that God gave Daniel and his friends grace and favor before the king of Babylon in order to seek the welfare of the city. Verse 18, at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. If you're here this morning and you're a teenager, I don't want you to shortchange yourself. Sorry, shortchange yourself. English is my second language, and I get my shuz and chuz mixed up still. Don't shortchange yourself. God can use you in mighty ways. 
we need a generation of young people that will resolve to be faithful and to be obedient to our God. And God has often worked in movements throughout history through young people. And here we see teenagers who through covenant faithfulness, by God's favor, are going to make an impact in this exile and during this exile. God gave them the grace needed to endure faithfully in exile. Look at verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is not just a throwaway line. Do you understand what has just happened here? Verse 1 is 605 B.C. Verse 21 is 539 B.C. When Cyrus comes into power. Here we have basically the length of the exile. Some 67 years, but in a rounded form, some 70 years. What is God saying to his people already just in Daniel chapter 1? You're going to make it. And as they read this, when they go back to the land, and as God's people read this years and years later, they are reminded the God who gave them over into exile is the God who sustained them through exile and brought them back home. Daniel, in fact, outlasted four kings. And already, verse 21 is pointing to the end of the Babylonian kingdom. Part of what happens in Daniel's is the realization that the end of the physical exile is not the end of the spiritual exile. In fact, there will be 70 weeks longer, weeks of weeks, and it is only in the final week that the eternal kingdom will be inaugurated through God's Messiah. So the message of the book of Daniel is hang in there. Your exiles in this strange land, hang in there because the God who brought you into exile is the God who gives you grace in exile and is the God who brings you back home from exile. The New Testament presents Jesus as the anointed king who is the answer to the exile. Our New Testament begins with Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And it is not an accident that it is a genealogy. And it's not just a genealogy. It is a royal genealogy that traces Jesus from Abraham to David, from David to the deportation, that's where we are in Daniel 1, and then from the deportation to the birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus is presented as that Messiah, that, that one that was promised from David's line that would sit on David's throne for all eternity and establish the eternal kingdom, the one on whose shoulders the government will stand. We are the beneficiaries of the new covenant promises that Daniel, as we get to the end of Daniel, was looking forward to. He's told to shut it up. We got to see it opened up, and we get to see Jesus, the answer to the exile, and now we ourselves are exiles. Except we're not marching to Jerusalem. We're marching to Zion. The God who gave his people over into exile, is the God who sustains them in exile and the God who brings them home from exile. Jesus is the one who inaugurates the eternal kingdom promise already in Daniel chapter 2. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, there's no better news that you could hear. As you look for answers in this world, as you, as you long for a, a good life, a, a, an ideal life in this world, the promise of Scripture is that in Jesus we have a perfect life. Not because of what we have done, but because he lived a perfect life. He is the one that kept covenant. 
were idolaters and covenant breakers, but he kept covenant. He resolved to remain faithful. And then he went to the cross and he took on God's just judgment for our rebellion and for our idolatry. And whoever believes in him, whoever bows down to King Jesus, whoever says, I repent of my allegiances to this world, I do away and cast away the idols of this world, and I bow my knee to King Jesus, to them is promised eternal life in the eternal kingdom under the eternal rule of King Jesus. And if you have not bowed the knee to King Jesus, the Bible warns you that there's a day when he's coming and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so I appeal to you by the mercies of God to turn away from your sin, turn away from your idols and trust in this God alone who has provided his king and placed him on his throne. There is no other way of salvation other than in Jesus Christ. This is the good news that we have in Christ You see, we too are exiles like Daniel. In James chapter 1, verse 1, James writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. In 1 Peter 1, verse 1, Peter calls us the elect exiles of the dispersion. In 1 Peter 2, 11, we are sojourners and exiles in this foreign and hostile world. Why? Because as Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. Is you read the book of Revelation, another apocalyptic book like Daniel, you will learn that the powers of this world, the beast, which is tyrannical government, the false prophet, which is corrupt religion, and the prostitute, which is the defiled city and culture, also called Babylon, they're all at work under the power of the dragon, Satan, to seek to corrupt and defile God's scattered people, the church. That's you and me. All around us, we are battling the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the devil is seeking to devour the people of God as we march to Zion as exiles on this earth. Babylon and its powers want us to forget our God and to adopt its gods. Babylon and its powers want us to forget our biblical convictions and adopt theirs. Babylon and its powers want us to forget our biblical ethic and to adopt theirs. This is the battle that we face in our culture. We are living in Babylon, but we're citizens of heaven. And Babylon is trying to reprogram us. Babylon is trying to indoctrinate us, to teach us its ways and to serve its gods. And the question that we face today is the same question Daniel and his friend's face. That is, will we endure exile-keeping covenant or will we be conformed to Babylon? That's the question that's facing us. And sadly, too many Christians today look more like Babylon than like heavenly Jerusalem. Consider the entertainment that we take in with our eyes and with our ears and with our minds. We're constantly being reprogrammed by the music we listen to, by the TV that we watch, by the movies that we imbibe in, by the books that we read, the entertainment culture all around us. Here's a helpful question for us. In our house, we used to call it the Philippians 4-8 test. But here's a helpful question. Is the entertainment that you're taking in, is it encouraging you 
to be more holy or to be more like the world. And I want to make sure you understand, my wife and I, we, we love life. We enjoy life. We love the things of earth. I love the beach. She loves the mountains. There are wonderful things. This is God's good creation for us to enjoy. But the problem is when we become conformed to this world. So there's nothing wrong with literature or movies or television or books. The question is, is what we're taking in, is it making us more holy or is it making us more like Babylon? And I think it's an important question for us to ask. Consider the culture that we live in. Our culture's view of success and our culture's view of wealth and our culture's view of prosperity. Consider our culture's view of right and wrong. Consider our culture's view even of human sexuality. Our culture is trying to press us in to say, well, what is male and female is whatever you feel is male and female. Not what is biologically male, what is biologically female. And we feel these pressures to conform to this world and to define and redefine the biblical sexual ethic. Beloved, it is all around us. As we navigate this culture as Christians, are we resolved to maintain holiness? Or are we slowly being conformed to the ways of Babylon? If, if you remember nothing from this message, then just remember to continually ask yourself this question. Do I look more like Babylon or do I look more like heaven? And I think that's a helpful guiding question for us in the choices that we make in this world. Without realizing it, we have allowed ourselves to be reprogrammed by Babylon and we have forgotten the holiness of the heavenly Jerusalem. Listen to Peter's charge in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are exiles, and as we live life on this earth as ambassadors of the heavenly kingdom, the world should look at us and see what heaven is like. They should look at us and see the ethic of heaven. They should look at us and see the love of heaven. They should look at us and they see the forgiveness of heaven. They should look at us and literally see heaven on earth. Heaven on earth is not out there. Heaven on earth is a church. It is a community, and, and as a church, we are ambassadors, and we're an embassy of the kingdom of heaven here on this earth to display to the surrounding world who our God is and what he is like and how he takes his people from this world and transforms them to look just like his son. We already looked at this verse in the class on corporate worship, but Romans 12, 2 do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you understand, beloved? We are in a battle, and it is a battle of thinking. We're to hold every thought captive. And as we are walking in this world, if we let our guard down, if we're not careful, we are slowly being conformed to Babylon. If we're to endure faithfully, we need to hear and heed the message of Daniel. Our God is sovereign and his kingdom is eternal. Let me leave you with four ways that understanding the sovereignty of God will empower us to endure as exiles on this earth. Number one, because our Lord is sovereign, you can trust his providence. 
Because our Lord is sovereign, you can trust his providence. And again, we, we, we already see in Daniel chapter 1, don't we? In Daniel chapter 1, verses 1, we see in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. But verse 2 tells us, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Our God is sovereign. There's nothing outside his control. He is directing everything, all of history. He's directing every circumstance. He's directing every moment to accomplish all his holy will. There is nothing that happens. There's nothing we face. There's nothing that you'll be confronted with that is outside the sovereignty of God. And listen, that doesn't make going through hardships easier. It doesn't mean that somehow if I magically believe, okay, God is sovereign, that means my life will be happy and everything will be okay. Life is still hard. Sin still abounds in this world. We will still face suffering and death. We will have hardships. We will grieve. But understanding that our Lord is sovereign anchors us to the understanding that no matter what happens, even if we cannot understand it, this did not surprise God. And even if I don't understand the why, I can trust him because he's not only sovereign, he's also good. Every circumstance, every good situation, every bad thing you face comes through the sovereign hand of God. Our Lord is sovereign. He is the one that raises kings. He is the one that deposes kings. He is in charge of the times and he is in charge of the seasons. There is nothing that is outside his sovereign control. And we can trust his providence. Our sovereign Lord appoints presidents and removes presidents. He establishes kings and he deposes kings. He is the one who sets up prime ministers and removes prime ministers. Our God is in control and he is the one who is sovereign. So when we understand that, listen, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid of who's king over there in that country over there. We don't need to be afraid of who's president in our Oval Office. Because our God is sovereign and he's working things out even though we might not understand it. Our God is in control. We can trust him when our life seems hard. We can trust him when our world appears in chaos. And we can trust him when all is well. We can rest in his sovereignty. Number two, because our Lord is sovereign, he will give you the grace that you need to endure. He will give you the grace that you need to endure. In verse 8 and 9, we see that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. And in verse 9, it says, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. God gave Daniel and his friends the grace to endure exile in Babylon. And God will give us the grace to endure our exile. He will give us the grace to endure faithfully in Babylon. And his grace is sufficient. While the world is continually trying to reprogram us, to its ways and its gods. If we're to endure faithfully without defiling ourselves and being conformed to this world, we, re we must remember who our king is. Our king is Jesus. He's already on the throne. He died, he rose again, he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father. The Father has handed all authority into him and he is now directing all of history toward its appointed end to the consummation of the eternal kingdom. One important way, I could talk about a lot of ways, but one important way to remember these truths, that our citizenship is in heaven, one important way to remember these truths 
is to gather with the church regularly. Now, why would I say that? Because sometimes we think church is a matter of good. It's, it's a good thing we go to church. It's, it's good that we take our kids to church. I want you to understand what a radical decision it is to gather with God's people as a church. When we gather together as a church, we are declaring our allegiance to King Jesus. We have come from outside this world and we have gathered as the embassy of heaven and we are declaring together Jesus is our king. We have repented of our allegiances to this world and we are encouraging one another. Our sovereign God calls us to gather each week in the name of our king. At our church, we have a call to worship. And the reason we begin with the call to worship is because worship is not our decision. It is an invitation from God. It is a call from God. He's the one that has called us out of this world into his kingdom through his son, by the power of his spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, and he calls us to worship. And we gather to worship, to remember who our king is. We gather each week to sing the songs of the kingdom. This is how we renew our minds. We are hearing all this stuff this week about Babylon, and we gather at God's people, and we're singing the songs of the kingdom to God, declaring our allegiance, but to one another. We're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. We're making melody with thanksgiving in our heart to the Lord. So we are singing to one another. And as we sing, we look around and we see what an amazing work the Lord has done. And we know our brothers and sisters who are they just had a baby, and they're rejoicing. And, and then we see across the room our brother and sister who just lost a baby. And they're singing to one another in joy and in grief. Together is God's family, declaring our allegiance to the king, understanding God is in control of both situations. And we can encourage one another in song. When we gather each week, we gather to pray for one another and for the welfare of our city, just like you did this morning. We gather each week to read the words of our king, his declarations to us, his word to us, to sustain us in exile. We gather each week to hear the words of our king preached through a preacher to tell us what God says. And we gather each week to welcome new citizens of the kingdom as we have baptism. I mean, baptism is a radical act. In some countries, people are threatened to death if they follow with baptism because baptism is an indication of separation from this world and initiation into the eternal family of God. And when we gather, we gather each week to anticipate the coming of the kingdom as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together and we come to the Lord's table. Gathering together each week is vital for faithful endurance as exiles in this world because it is a reminder, it is a renewing of the mind that our citizenship is in heaven and we long for the eternal kingdom and for the return of Christ. So, friends, take every opportunity to gather with the church. For those who are able, we understand this is an odd season of life. Sing to the Lord with all your heart with thanksgiving to one another. Take in God's word and ask for grace to apply it to your life. These are, these are the ordinary means of grace that God gives us to sustain us in exile. And gather together throughout the week to speak the truth and love to one another, to encourage one another, and to pray for one another. Our Lord gives us the grace to endure exile. And one of those graces is the church. Number three, because our Lord is sovereign, you can live faithful as dual citizens of heaven and earth. Again, verses 17 through 20. 
As for these youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. God gave them favor in order to bless their city and to even bless their captors, to seek the welfare of Babylon. This is something that I want to make sure that we have clear. We are citizens of heaven. We must unroot ourselves from this world. But that doesn't mean that we don't have anything to do in this world. And in fact, that doesn't mean that we can't enjoy the things of this world. Though we are citizens of a heavenly Jerusalem, that doesn't mean that we're to escape this world. We are ambassadors of our heavenly king and his government. We are to be faithful witnesses in this world. Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you know one of the reasons that God has left us here in this world as exiles? It's to be salt and light to show the unbelieving world what heaven looks like. That's why the unity of the church is so important. That's why the love of Christ as we express to one another is so important. Because as the world looks at the church, they should see the love of Christ controlling us and living out as the people of God. Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we're to live in this world as heavenly citizens, seeking the welfare of Babylon, which means at least prayer, just like you all prayed this morning, praying for Babylon, for the Supreme Court of the United States. We're called to pray for the governing authorities that are over us. We're to pray for our city. We're to pray for the welfare of our city. But also, we serve in this world through our work or through our vocation. There was a time it felt like if you were smart and holy, you were encouraged to go into full-time ministry. There's nothing wrong with going into full-time ministry. That's a wonderful thing. But I think we shortchange too many Christians. Because you see, we're in this world. And our witness is to be Christians. And so we need Christian attorneys. We need Christian medical doctors. We need Christian accountants. We need Christian teachers. We need people who will be faithful in exile through their vocations. And whatever vocation you have, so long as it is God-honoring and Christ-exalting, not something that is contrary to Scripture, you are serving God by serving your city and by serving your company, by starting companies, by running for office, by being a part of some kind of think tank that tries to, to, to create policy that is good for human flourishing. Those are all things that we should be involved in and engaged in as exiles in Babylon. These are all good things. If you are here and you're a public servant, Thank God for you. Thank God for the first responders when there are emergencies. Thank God for the police officers who risk their lives to keep us safe that allow us to worship in spaces like this. You are serving the Lord your God as a faithful exile in this world. 
and participate in our democratic processes without putting your hope in the government. That's what faithful exiles do. Because our Lord is sovereign, we can live faithfully as dual citizens of heaven and of earth. And number four, because our Lord is sovereign, you can rest assured this exile will end. This exile will end. Jesus is coming back. Verse 21 reminds us, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. In 539, 538 B.C., Cyrus gave an edict that the Israelites could return to Jerusalem and rebuild. And we have Ezra and Nehemiah that show us the result of that. But the point is, even in the prophecy of Daniel, we already see the end of exile. Isn't this amazing? Just like God, in Daniel chapter 1, we have the beginning and the end of exile between verses 1 and 21. He assures his people, I gave you into exile. I will give you grace for exile, but I will bring you back to me. The exile will end. Our sovereign Lord has revealed to us the end, and we have revelation which shows us the end. We may be in exile in Babylon, but we're marching to Zion. Jesus is coming back, and our exile will end. The question facing us today is simply this. Do we look more like Babylon, or do we look more like heavenly Jerusalem? I want to leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, 17 through 4, 1. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. That's the message of Daniel. Stand firm thus in the Lord. My beloved brothers and sisters, don't be afraid. Our God is sovereign and our God is good. And the very God who gave his people over into exile is the same God who gives his people grace to endure exile. He has given us his son. He has given us his spirit. He has given us his word. He has given us one another, his church. And if he has not withheld his son, he will not withhold anything that we need to endure faithfully. God's grace is sufficient. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you have not abandoned us and left us to ourselves to figure things out. But you have revealed you, who you are. You have revealed your son. You have revealed your plan. And you have given us all the grace necessary to endure exile. And so, Father, we confess that there are times that we look more like Babylon than like heavenly Jerusalem. And we ask that you would forgive us. Father, this day we resolve not to be defiled by Babylon, but trusting in you and in your grace, knowing you're sovereign and good, we resolve to keep covenant. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen.